Greetings, everybody. Welcome into our long-form interview here this week on Mining Stock Daily. Uh, this is going to be aired Thursday morning. We usually air these interviews Friday morning, but uh, since I'm off on a little holiday and vacation with the family, first time in, uh, boy, prior to COVID, uh, I'm going to take a day off and celebrate the time away, and we've got a big one, big interview to share with all the listeners today of the podcast. Happy to welcome somebody who... Uh, you know, I, I've been following and listening to and reading about for the last uh, couple years, and uh, he recently went to a paid subscription service, which I uh, quickly opted into to pay for because he challenges almost everything I hold to believe true, which is a healthy thing, I might add. Um, and his conversations he has with people on his podcast within his newsletter is just completely insightful. That is Mr. Grant Williams. Hi, Grant. How you doing? Mate, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And, and enjoy that holiday when you finally get there. Yeah, I will. Uh, hopefully, it, it, it's a mix. We're heading to the Pacific Northwest, so it's either going to be rainy and cold or too warm for spring. So we'll see. Well, it, it, it's somewhere else, right? And in COVID times, somewhere else is good. Just uh, after after months of lockdown, it's just nice to be in a new environment, you know. You, know, you recently traveled here. Uh, I did, yeah, yeah. I went. What I was went that? To, what was? Um, tell me, what is the experience like? What what do I have to look forward to? You know, it's it's kind of strange. Look, look, wearing a mask, and I'm and I'm assuming you still have to wear a mask on the planes. I know various places are lifting restrictions and stuff, but um, I had to wear a mask on the on the plane. I, I flew here in the Cayman Islands to the U.S. It's 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 now a logistical nightmare to fly with it, uh, internationally. You can't just book a flight and get on a plane. You have to get permission to travel and you know forms filled out and PCR tests before you get on the plane. And so international travel is is painful. You know when I was in the U.S., I, I managed to make trips to to Texas and to California, and and they were fine apart from the, you know the discomfort of wearing a mask on the plane for a few hours. The airports were empty. You breeze through security. You know, there's, there's a lot to be said for it. I have to say, um, but it's it's you, know, you you can feel the world is adjusting to this this new um, this new environment. And and say the worst part of it is the logistical problems of not just being able to hop on a plane anymore. It's 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 uh, you know to come back here to the Cayman Islands where I'm now quarantining. I'm with a with a tracker bracelet on my wrist because oh, wow. I'm not allowed out of the house for 10 days. Um, <laughs> you know, you have to get permission to travel or to permission to land negative PCR test before you get on the plane. One, when you land it, it's, you know, I, I hope this part of it goes away because, um, these are the sort of things that once they get imposed, they tend to be very sticky. So I'm hoping we're not living in that world for too much longer. The, the world does seem to be adjusting, at least here in the United States, yeah. you know, and a little, you know, backdrop. So, we we got the garden finally planted over the weekend, but obviously it took two or three trips to the garden center of the hardware store to get it done. And it was Saturday afternoon here in Denver Metro. Bat shit crazy everywhere I went. Everywhere. Parking lots full, yeah. lines out the door. And even you walk into these nurseries, and I was just kind of interested. I mean, I was with my son, who's obviously not vaccinated, so I was wearing a mask just to make sure. Yeah, you know, because it's only fair to him. That's the way my wife and I are decided to go about it. But I would say half the people within the nursery were still wearing masks, even though it wasn't mandatory. And be quite frankly, nobody cared. You know, it was just like either you wear a mask or you don't. It's your own personal decision. I feel like we're yeah. getting back to that. You can make your own damn decisions for what's best for you. Well, I, I lived in Asia for many years, and over there, um, 
you, you know, in, in kind of cold and flu season, you'd see people wearing it. If, if someone wasn't well, they would wear a mask. And it, it you just don't bat an eyelid about it. It didn't, it wasn't, it was a personal choice you made to protect other people. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I dare say masks will become a familiar sight. I just hope that there's no kind of stigmatism that goes uh, with them. You know, that that's that's the real potential shame. Oh, we unfortunately have to politicize almost everything we see. Yeah, anymore. well, that's it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> Um, I, 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 I'm going to ask you, uh, we're going to have a little bit of fun at the end of this interview, but I got to ask you, I know you are a, a diehard football fan, uh, the right part of London, I might add, but probably the wrong team. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit of champions league here analysis at the end, but uh, let's get down to business here. Uh, cause sure. I got a number of bullet points. I'd like to get your thoughts here, Grant, uh, knowing that you, communicate with so many different people. I mean, your Rolodex or contact list is probably thousands deep of so many different aspects of where to find information, even ideas that challenge your train of thought, what you hold to be true. But I wanted to get a really start off with this idea of QE. Uh, we're getting this, we're hearing this, you know, roaring kind of rumor from the Fed that maybe now they are thinking about thinking about tapering. Uh, so the this idea I wanted I wanted to headline was QE or not to QE. That is the question. Well, Shakespearean, let's get Shakespearean here when it comes right. to quantitative easing. Well, look, I mean, if we're going to get Shakespearean, then past is prologue, right? That's another Shakespearean quote. And and unfortunately, look, um, we're still talking about QE. We're what thirteen years into this experiment, twelve years into this experiment, and um, they've tried to they've tried to withdraw it. Uh, three times so far, and uh, and they're right back where they started from. I think we all understand at this point what happens to markets should the Fed uh, withdraw the stimulus that uh, they've been pumping into the markets for for you know over a decade now. So the, the question really becomes: Can they gently remove it? Um, and I would argue the answer is no, not without serious economic growth. Um, uh, the kind that would likely mandate higher interest rates. So it, it's it's a very, very tricky situation they've created for themselves. The markets are forward-looking. If, if the Fed starts to talk about a taper, as we've seen you know, every time they've tried to taper, we know what the markets have done. The markets have forced them straight back into it. I, I don't think that that will be any different this time. Um, and perhaps it could be worse because obviously they're now buying $120 billion a month of this stuff. So it's a much bigger amount of support to remove from the market. I know they'd love to. I know they would dearly love to uh, withdraw and taper or whatever they want to call it. But um, I think they're going to have a very, very difficult time doing it because to do it, they have to convince the markets that everything's okay. And if, if everything's okay, things are normal, then valuations don't reflect that. And so I think you're going to get um, a lot of liquidity uh, premium coming out of asset prices um, in a hurry. So I, you know, I, I know they'd love to do it. I'm sure they'll try at some point. Uh, the question is how quickly does the market force them back into it? And I, I, would, I would say that they don't have the stomach for any prolonged combat with the market, unfortunately. Something that rung, kind of rung my bell there, what you're just saying is the term economic growth and you would need that for the Fed to decide to kind of taper. I mean, I guess what, what kind of economic growth are we looking at? I mean, we're get, we're having spending out the wazoo, personal savings, yeah. people going out and just 
going to the nursery center and going no, go nuts. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And that's that's why they're being forced, I think, to talk about tapering because the data is coming in so hot in various places that it's it's showing up their policies to be utterly reckless. You know, there is absolutely no way when you see those kind of data points that they should be buying $120 billion a month of bonds to support the markets. It's it's farcical, frankly. So they're being forced into this by these by these hot numbers coming through. Um, but but again, you know, the, the reality here is, you know, let's look at let's look at how many more people are still unemployed. Let's look at the participation rate in the labor force. You know, the the the, the market, the, the economy is not healthy. It's it's releasing a lot of pent up spending. It's it's we're seeing you know stimulus checks going directly into the economy, which is why you're seeing this massive spending. We're seeing all these people that that like yourself didn't have a holiday last year, um, you know, are buying new cars or they're going on a holiday this year or they're having some work done on the house. So we, we we're seeing this pent up spending. It doesn't necessarily mean the economy's healthy because with all this spending, with all this monetary stimulus, with all this fiscal stimulus, come higher prices. And we're also seeing that now that the big gamble that the Fed is making right now is this this word transitory that they keep ramming down everybody's throats. And it, and it's clear they really do believe it's transitory. And look, maybe they're right. OK, but, but think through the two outcomes. If they're right about this inflation being transitory and we head back into a deflationary uh, situation, there's no way they can remove the crutch they've put under the market's arm. If they're wrong and we head into inflation, then at some point they're going to be forced to put interest rates up. If they put interest rates up, uh, there is not any part of this economy, to say nothing of financial and risk markets, that isn't incredibly susceptible to higher interest rates. So they, they really are backed into a corner here. And, and whilst you can make that case that the, the, the economic data is strong, that's forcing them to say, well, you know, we, we really ought to think about tapering because if and to, to do anything otherwise would, would just really set their recklessness in stone. But whichever way this goes now, the Fed has a major problem to deal with. And uh, I, I think this time around, I don't know that jawboning is going to necessarily provide them with a solution to this problem. Have you given some thought to the psychology that we have now, this inflationary psychology when it comes to personal spending? You know, based on supply constraints, you mentioned that, you know, things are obviously costing more. Uh, they're harder to get. We've got <laughs> cars can't come, new cars can't come online because we have a semiconductor shortage. Uh, obviously, everything's more expensive, but it, it almost seems now like because of people being pent up over the last year, wanting to go out and do these things and spend the money on things they missed out on last year. It's like, well, I better take advantage of it now while I can. I don't care how more expensive it is. Just if it's available, I'm going to buy it now. So the patience is out the window. Yeah. And, and, you, and you hit upon the key point there. You know, when you do, do you spend any time thinking about the psychology of this? Yeah, because inflation is an expectations game, right? Um, I think, uh, and I think that mindset you've just communicated there is exactly right. Now, if you take it away from the from the consumer and you look at uh, through this earnings season, you look at a lot of the conference calls from big you know, multinational global companies, the theme of inflation, the theme of being able to pass on higher input costs to customers was everywhere. So th at the moment, uh, some of these companies are struggling to find a way to pass these increased input costs on to consumers. 
most consumers I know would probably argue that they don't seem to be having that much problem doing it because everything seems to be that much more expensive. But but that's where we are, right? We we have shortages, we have pent up uh, savings on the sideline. Looking and, and and your point, I think, is absolutely right. People are happy to pay more because they haven't been able to do these things for a year. But again, once once people become happy to pay more, it makes it much easier. It solves that problems for companies trying to figure out how I pass on these costs to my consumers, because they've got this window where people aren't necessarily paying close attention to prices they just want either to spend that money or or, or kind of indulge in the things they haven't had a chance to so you know it it, it it's a perfect storm now i i would point out that, that on the on the side of the argument that we are that this is transitory um and that we will actually see deflationary forces uh reassert themselves there are some brilliant brilliant economic minds you know the two most prominent ones, probably Lacey Hunt and Dave Rosenberg, both of whom are friends and both of whom I have a tremendous amount of respect for. Um, and both of whom make very eloquent cases as to why this inflation spike is 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 going to go away. Um, so I, I take that I take that very, very seriously when I think this thing through. and and whilst I come down on the side of this not being a transitory spike in inflation, I think it could be more persistent than that. I'm always const, uh, constantly aware of the case made by the likes of Rosie and Lacey. Um, but I think time frame becomes very important. If you're a trader, I think you have to be uh, a lot more aware of short-term deflation, longer-term inflation. I think if you're investing, then the chance of, given everything we've discussed in the last 15, 20 minutes, given all that being said, it's difficult to make a case for deflation persisting for another five years, for example. It feels like if deflation does take hold, the, the runway is now clear for infinitely more stimulus to be thrown at it. Uh, and ultimately, they will succeed in getting this inflation. Everything is in place. You know, The, the, the Fed have told everybody they're going to allow inflation to run hot. We've seen high prints be talked away and as if they're not important. So everything is ready. Uh, so even if the deflationists are right, this this is just a pulse and it goes away. Uh, I think if you're trying to invest over the longer term um, and you're investing it, it, it over a period of years rather than weeks and months, then you need to take this inflation scare very, very seriously and have a, and have a think about what it means for your portfolio as it's currently constructed. Returning back to this idea of QE, uh, a guess you had on the other week, Mr. Peter Zeehan. Sorry if I pronounce that, his name. Zion. Peter Zion. 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 Uh, He had an interesting note about the amount of QE the U.S. Federal Reserves had compared to other central banks around the world. And really, other central banks, including China, have literally made the U.S. federal move almost dwarfed. Yeah. And so, you know, which was, you know, really astounding to me because obviously being an American here, like I'm just blown away with how much money has been created and how much assets has been bought, but it is not much compared to what other nations have been doing. Um, And so, you know, based on that, do you think the Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve are going to continue to watch and just kind of follow, follow the herd here of foreign banks? I I, I don't think, I don't think. There, I don't think Jerome Powell and the Fed are watching and following. I think I think the rest of the world takes its cue from the Federal Reserve. Um, 
the Chinese numbers are 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 off the scale, but they're but they're so uh, they're so opaque. It's very difficult to to really get a handle on credit impulses in China. Um, you know, some people do some very good work with that, but but you almost have to kind of look at the Chinese numbers as complete outliers, which they are in in every in every corner of the of the Chinese credit markets. But let's focus on the Bank of Japan. Let's focus on uh, the ECB, and let's focus on the Fed. And, and you're right. You know, the, the, they do exceed what the U.S. has done. Um, some people would argue that the ECB are managing an economy with 550 million people in it. You know, almost double that of the U.S. And they would make that argument. Other people will argue that the Japanese central bank, it, it, their economy and their bond market is is completely closed essentially, and and it's certainly mostly domestic owned, so it doesn't necessarily um, have as big an effect worldwide. And and we always, of course, do come back to the Federal Reserve because they are the central bank of the country with the world's reserve currency. It's that simple. Um, now, one could argue that you know talking about well, the Fed haven't been nearly as bad as the Chinese or the Europeans or the Japanese is like saying you know I don't know that the, the the Fed only murdered one person. The Chinese are serial killers. It, it doesn't really matter that much, right? They're all doing the same thing. The levels of it, it really at this point is what can they get away with? The Europeans have managed to get away with doing more than the, than the Americans in absolute terms um, relative to the size of the economy. You could adjust it that way if you wanted to. The, the, um, the Chinese people don't really know what to make of the Chinese or, or how to do anything about it because obviously they're, their um their currency is not convertible, and the Japanese, as I said, it's a it's a it's really a domestic owned market. So really, the Federal Reserve is is the best barometer for the world, and and like it or not, U.S. monetary policy does set the course for the rest of the world. So so what are we really arguing over here, right? Who's who's done more? Who's done less? It, it, you know, the, the, it, it's it's about the path and the trajectory they're all on. They're all on the same path. They're all doing the same thing. At various periods of time, one might take the lead and one might drop back, but they're all on this road to perdition. Um, they're all heading in the same direction, and they've all got the same problems, right? How do we extricate ourselves from the situation that we've created from this prison we've built around ourselves? You know, they, they've been laying the bricks around themselves for for years now, and they've finally kind of got above head height and realised they forgot to put a door in. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But I, I don't, I don't think saying hey, they're way, way worse than we are, is that great an argument? Um, you've all got the same problem. It's just, it's just at what point does the financial world decide to make you pay for the, for the problem you've created for yourself? You talk a lot about ideas of the end game, and here you're talking about almost a collectiveness of every, everything moving in unison here. Uh, given what you just said and kind of uh, uh, thinking back to that, you know, the idea of this end game, do you find it as a collective fall uh, you know, on, on a global scale or do you see it more of a domino effect from potential country to country like we saw from the crash of 29 to the fall of you know, the Weimar Republic in 31? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. I mean, I, th I think this, this idea of the end game um, from, when we, from when Bill and I started that podcast we've realized as it's gone on that, that really framing it as the end game, um, it, it's just a useful framing device. You know, realistically speaking, nothing ends. This, this, this all, this all continues. It's really a question of, of what form it continues in the, 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 the current 
financial system, the current way of doing things will end, but the world goes on, the financial industry goes on. And so it's really a question of how do we transition from this to whatever comes next and what does whatever comes next look like? Um, so as we've kind of gone through this process and, and you kind of start to realize this, then it, it really does just become a, a matter of trying to corral ideas, trying to understand different potential paths. Because look, I've, I've talked about this often, but for, for everybody listening to this, you know, the people at home listening and the people that you talk to on this podcast or any podcast, when we're, when we're talking about what's going to happen, we're all guessing about an unknowable future. So for me, it's been a question of how do I get as many thoughtful, insightful individuals to lay out their path for the potential future uh, as possible. And then it becomes incumbent upon me to sift through those, create a narrative that I think is the most likely thing to play out and then assess, okay, what does that mean for my portfolio? How do I need to think about investing if this is the way things play out? But you have to do that um, against the backdrop of uncertainty because we're all guessing. So I, I, so I think it's very dangerous to to have an opinion about the future and be wedded to it. Um, I think it's very dangerous to listen to one person and take that person's thoughts as read. I think it's 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 important to to find people who have a decent track record, who who are thoughtful and are willing to admit that they don't they don't know what's going to happen. But but again, and I I can't stress this enough. This all comes down to the individual. You know, everybody has to take responsibility for what will prove to be, I suspect, in time, some incredibly important decisions about their about their future, about their investments. Um, about what they do with their wealth, because I suspect history will look back on this period of, of great turbulence, and we will we will realise that what we saw in 08 and what we've seen up until now was not the kind of final act of this play. I think that's still to come, um, and and everybody needs to try and figure out how they're going to manage their way through that. So that's what we've really tried to do with the end game is just have conversations around this to help you know give people potential ideas, potential thoughts about what could happen and, and let them take that information and, and use it as effectively as they possibly can. Let's focus on the future, uh, a post-COVID future and this idea of getting a little geopolitical here. Uh, populism, uh, rise of populism. This isn't the first time in history that populism has kind of risen from the ashes. Uh, is it to the rescue or is it would it be a revitalization of globalism that will save the day? Uh, again, look, it's a, it's a good question. The, the The trouble is, if you look back at periods of great populism, you find they occurred very similar conditions to today. Um, there tend to be harsh financial conditions. It tends to be you know in or around a fourth turning when when the, the world for you know. 60, 70, 80 years has been on a trajectory and it kind of reaches the end of that particular um, part of its of its history. And we've seen that. Um, and so if you go back to the last period of, of great populism, which was you know, arguably you could say that was the lead up to World War Two, um, you know, in Germany, you had the the repercussions of the Versailles Treaty after World War One, which had which had crippled Germany's finances. 
And it was that they'd had the, the Weimar hyperinflation. And it was those financial events which crystallized this populist movement that, that brought eventually Adolf Hitler to power. Um, and it, and it, you know, it, it's hard to make direct comparisons to today, although we have seen the, the rise and the strengthening of, of far right parties right across the developed world. Which is a which is a you know a worrying sign for for anybody uh, living in those countries, but these things tend to run in cycles. And um, you know if you if you've read uh, Neil Howe and Bill Strauss's book The Fourth Turning, you'll understand what these look like. You also realise that we are now in a fourth turning when there tends to be great upheaval, um, both politically and um, and societally. So I think I think we we're ju we're just about to to kind of go into the, the final act of that. And we have no certainty about how it's going to look, but historically they've tended to be, you know, ugly, violent, uh, traumatic, volatile periods. And I, and I think, again, we just need to be cognizant of that and, and, and aware of it. I like how uh, uh, Peter said the other week when he was defining populism, he called it noise without responsibility. Right, right, right. <laughs> And look, it, look it, it does feel like that sometimes, right? It does feel like that. We, we, and we do, oh. in the age of social media, noise is given a platform and noise is shared. So the noise becomes noisier. But I think that just makes it more important and more incumbent upon us all to look for the signal inside that noise. And it's not easy to do. You know, you can't rely on mainstream media to help you do that anymore. Um, there is an agenda everywhere you look. Uh, and, and in my experience... You know, I found that, that seeking out independent commentators who aren't tied to an organization that is trying to sell advertising space is is the best chance you've got uh, of, of finding people who are curious, who are thoughtful, um, who are pragmatic and, and who are willing to ask the questions that that mainstream media dent because they don't want to lose advertisers. It's, it's very, very difficult uh, right now to 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 be paying attention because there is so much noise. But I don't think, certainly in my lifetime, it's ever been more important to be paying attention and, and to understand um, not just what's going on around you, but the motivations of those people through whom you, you get that information. Well, in the last year, we had nothing but attention to give, right? I mean, we've been locked yep. in and we have um, hardly anywhere to go. The, the, and it, 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 it has spurred into trading in the markets. Uh, it has been labeled the attention economy. Uh, call options just went berserk in 2020. Uh, over you know overvaluations in 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 tech. Uh, it also spurred into the crypto space, I might argue. But a post-COVID world, as things start opening up here, and we get back to quote unquote regular lives, which you know give or take may or may not happen. You know, in balance here. What is the status of attention economy? Do you see people like, well, I don't have to be in front of my computer every day, so I don't need to trade call options on Tesla or tech, or I can, you know, I don't have, I will not have the time to give to trying to make a quick buck in trading. Do you think that changes? Yeah, it's 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 interesting because you know the first question to ask is what does the post-pandemic work world look like? Are we all going back to an office, or are we all working from home still? I mean. It, you know, you, you, it, it's tough to see how things go back to the way they were when so many companies have found that, you know, people working remotely works great. Um, it's worked great for a lot of people. So I, I suspect we're not going to see a, a complete return to work. We are going to see people working from home. And obviously working from home gives you 
much more latitude if you want to be <clears throat> playing around in GameStop calls or you know or, or crypto. Um, but I think I think that's that's more of a mindset that as we've seen in the crypto markets in the last week or so, um, the volatility that is that is inherent in that ecosystem has taken out an awful lot of the people who were doing things that you knew was going to one day lead to trouble you know buying on leverage piling in at the top with borrowed money on credit cards all the all the stuff you see at, at, at classic market tops um, and and we've seen a 50 odd percent drawdown in in a matter of seemingly days in in Bitcoin and even bigger falls in some of the in some of the lesser cryptocurrencies so that is going to leave a mark on a lot of people I mean there, there will be the the you know the maximalists and the hodlers who will shrug this off and and tell you how this thing is still going on a million bucks and that's fine but alongside them now there are going to be tens if not hundreds of thousands of people who bought this thing because it was going up saw it run up from 30,000 to 60,000 thought I can't miss this everyone keeps telling me it's going on a million they've lost everything you know they've, they've had their price cut in half if they used any leverage at all they're essentially out of the game and that leaves them up. You know, those people most likely won't be back for, for some considerable time. We saw this after 2000. A lot of the retail traders that got buried when the dot-com bubble burst didn't come back. It's only really recently that we've seen retail trading return. And that was fueled by stimulus checks and, and time on the hands, as you said. So, again, you know, we really don't know. But it's one of those imponderables you can think through and and try and make an educated assessment of of how this plays out. And I think... For all of us, um, it's a really important exercise to, to to gauge how you think about these things yourself. Because if you're sitting there thinking, you know, if I can, I want to work from home, you're not the only person who's thinking that. that that's going to be a thing. There are going to be plenty of people feeling the same way. And so you have to weigh that up. You know, you, you'll, you may read somewhere, oh, yeah, no, the, the, the workplace is going to return to normal. Companies are using this opportunity to rent out space at depressed levels, blah, blah, blah. Trust what's in your gut. And, and, if, and if you think to yourself, there's, the wild horses couldn't drag me into, back into Manhattan to work if I, can, if I can stay up here in Westchester County, trust your gut that you are not going to be alone and, and factor that into how you think this is going to play out. You know, this, this idea of, of taking the information that you have, assessing it yourself and coming up with your own conclusions. Again, I keep coming back to that, but, it, but it's so important. And we don't know how this is going to play out. But we do have recent-ish history in 2000 and, and what happened to all those retail investors. We know that they all went away, scarred, not quite for life, but for certainly a couple of decades. And that's likely to happen again here. So be, mm. so you know, be aware of that. The moves in the crypto space have recently have been very interesting. I mean, you know, obviously I have a pretty high risk tolerance when it comes to investing and speculating. That's why I'm in junior resource exploration. Right. I mean, highly degenerate, that, you know, mindset. That's not risk tolerance, <laughs> that's masochism. But I, you know, in the last year, I, I have always thought the most speculative position with my money was always into Bitcoin. Um, which I got out of, uh, not at the highs, but pretty near. But uh, you know, a week and a half ago, two years, I, when 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 Bitcoin started that first drop, I messaged a mutual friend Tony Greer, and I said, when some of those you know prominent hodlers were going on mainstream media and actually having a smile on their face, I knew they were in crisis control because they never smile. Right. 
So it's like, okay, something's up. Like they're not, they're not feeling very good about the, this position anymore. Uh, but so I've, I've given some thought about this. Do you think this fall in cryptos is just another part? Is this just part of the cycle here, or is there maybe you know tougher hands at play in the backdrop? Look, I think any time you get in any market, you get like a, a, a um, an asset that's had the spotlight on it and has has kind of spiked the way Bitcoin has, it's inevitable you're going to get this kind of drawdown. It's just inevitable. Uh, and mm-hmm. and any of the hodlers will tell you that, oh, yeah, we've been expecting this. Bitcoin's had X amount of 70, 80, 90% falls. We were, we were all prepared for this. I'll, I'll tell you, nothing prepares you for losing 50% of your capital in a week. Nothing. I don't care what anybody says. No one's sitting there rubbing their hands going, this is great. I'm so happy this has happened. It's just, it's just, <laughs> it's just not human nature. That's not to say they've all piled out, but it, it will have given them all some anxious nights. Um, but uh, look, the crypto is, um, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing to watch. Uh, I I've don't and never have and never will hold myself up to be any kind of expert on it. I, I watch it with interest, mild amusement at times and bewilderment at others. Um, but fully acknowledging that, that that my understanding of it is is not deep enough to really opine on it, uh, I, I know what I watch. I've I've seen this kind of thing before in terms of the 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 mentality of the people involved um, on both sides, the bulls and the bears. Uh, you know, there's a degree of conviction that that always frightens me. Uh, whenever you get this kind of conviction, whether it's on a bull side or a bear side, it normally leads to trouble. This time it's different because we've got it on both. And again, social media is amplifying that. Um, so I, look, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think distributed ledger technology is going anywhere. I think that's here to stay. I think the blockchain is here to stay. This is revolutionary. But um, with a Bitcoin from here, look, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to know. But uh, you know, if you, if you gave me a, a copy of the New York Times from 10 years in the future, and it said Bitcoin had crashed and burned and gone to zero, or it said on the headline Bitcoin tops a million dollars, neither would surprise me at this point, frankly. I, I, it, it could go either way, and it could actually do both, right? That, yeah. That's the crazy thing yeah. about it. So I, look, I choose to stay out of it. It's not, it's not a suitable place for me to, to invest. I've kind of dabbled in it, but I, I, I don't care enough about it or, or have the, 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 the bandwidth to pay enough attention to it to stay current on it. So I let, I let other people... Um, uh, trade blows in the crypto space. Yeah, somebody asked me yesterday uh, if I had traded cryptos. And I said I'm not into any, you know, any cryptocurrencies right now. And, and this person asked me why, and I said, for the fact that you know it's not in a very good spot as we speak, but it's this. The, these things are just were created out of nothing, yeah. Except code and computers, yeah. and this kind of leans into you had written about it in the past about the gamification of markets and living in this virtual world that we continue to ever you know step foot into almost week over week here. Past guest uh, Anthony Deaton on your show said something that just you know I think I was out walking my dog when I was listening to that episode of yours and it made me stop in my tracks literally when he said you know. A virtual world does it can still contain virtue, yeah, or something along those lines, yeah. And it was just like it was one of those philosophical questions, like, damn it, I don't know. Yeah, he'll, he'll do that to you. Tony will do that to you. <laughs> he'll he'll do that to you. And look, it's right. And he and I, he and I, 
have actually spent many hours discussing that. You know, have we, are we exchanging virtue for virtual? Um, and it's an easy case to argue, sadly. Uh, you know, it, it's it's hugely problematic. But again, you know, I, I, I hate to keep coming back there, but you have to. You know, when you when you when you essentially devalue money, and by that I mean you make it free. When you make money free, you devalue it. And if money has no value, this is why people are willing to gamble and buy call options with their stimulus checks thinking, hey, this is going to make me a millionaire because there's no value to money anymore. And and that is, there is something virtuous in, in doing a day's work and being rewarded with something for it that has value. And that's, that's how society really was founded. So if you take away the value and the reward for a day's work um, and you make it into, you know, a, a, essentially a limitless commodity, what do you do to the underpinnings of society? And, and it is a very philosophical question, but, but I think it's one that people ought to be asking themselves. And I dare say, tragically, I think a lot of people will ultimately be asking themselves that question, but it will be after they've realized uh, what's happened and after the kind of wheels have fallen off this thing um, in whatever fashion that happens. So I, look, I, it's, it's, it's an unusual time to be alive. Um, I won't say it's unprecedented. You know, if you look back through history, you can find a lot of similar threads to what we're witnessing now throughout history. But I will say I, I don't, or I certainly haven't read about a time where all of these things have come together. You know, we've had negative rates before. We've had, um, you know, we've had price suppression before. We've had ages of fraud before. We've had, you know, ages of celebrity before. But right now we have all these things and they're all amplified by social media, they're all amplified um, by the internet. And so we've just reached a point in in human history, I think, that that is some kind of fork in the road. Um, and I don't want to over-dramatize this because it's going to play out however it's going to play out. But I think anyone who is just kind of sleepwalking through this period of our lives and assuming everything is either entertainment or nothing matters, mm. I think we'll one day regret not paying attention and not taking the time to think through the ramifications of, of the path we're on. We, yeah, we have had moments of chaos like this in the past. And I would maybe take a step and in, in, in think about, well, what's different now? And it always comes back to the technology. You know, in 2008, during the Great Financial Recession, that was the advent of the iPhone. So that technology was just you know, not everybody had an iPhone like they do now. Yeah. So the communication tools, the connectivity continues to improve and get faster and faster. And I'm kind of curious, you know, how does that all play into uh, the volatility <laughs> swings <laughs> and how quickly and how frequently it happens? Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's a question, just kind of more of us giving some thought in the back yeah, well, of look, my head. Well, look, faster, right? It, it's, right? it's simple. The simple answer is it allows the transmission of information faster. Um, it allows it to be broader and generally speaking, when information travels faster, it's, it's verified less. And that's what we've seen. Right. You know, we've seen a, an awful lot of stuff get thrown out on the internet that is, you know, hits my Twitter feed 15 times in 10 minutes. And then a day later you find out that it was 
you know someone's bothered to fact check it and I, i've been caught by this i've, I've put I've, I've seen stuff that i've read and just maybe go wow that's amazing and i've and i've i've retweeted it um and then a couple of days later i found out that it was it was false i've, I've become a lot more wary about that now about about retweeting stuff without doing the due diligence mm -hmm. and i learned that the hard way but i think a lot of people don't i think people uh, you know, they see something, it takes three seconds to put it on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, and then they've forgotten about it and moved on. It's just a cool thing to show their friends. But that, let, let's call it misinformation as opposed to disinformation, although both of them are out there, um, is, is whizzing around the world, changing opinions, changing um, paths, uh, while you're, you know, pouring yourself a cold beer and sitting down and watch, watch the golf. So, you know, it's... Um, it's this technology has has been phenomenal for mankind you know every technological advancement we've made has brought us to the society we're in today but it you know it's not without problems you know the yeah. the, 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 the the invention of just about everything has had some setbacks at some time and and what we're looking at today social media is starting I think to come into the eye of that storm and people are starting to recognize the damage it's doing um, it's a question of of how they arrest that and and what kind of measures they have to take to, to be able to, to to try and mitigate the the, the the bad things that social media bring to the world yeah you know chronologically you think of the tech bubble of 2000 uh the internet was so young and people who really brought up those valuations the internet was brand new to them at you know whether it be yeah. you know 30 40 50 something of age the great financial crisis of the late 2000, you know, 2010s, uh, me, the millennial generation, we didn't find the internet until I was about 10 years old. So that's something we had to learn to adopt in life. But what we're seeing in this past chaotic move in the markets, people who, you know, the young people that have been involved in this have known nothing but the internet and connectivity. They've always been connected. They, they didn't have to learn. They had to grow up with it. Yeah. So to think about those tools generationally that people have used or had to learn, depending on when you were born and put to use, um, I don't know. It's just really, it's just really interesting to think about how we, you know, the generation after me will have always been connected. I'm the last yeah. generation to where we had to learn to do it. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really um, I got to ask you about metal, something physical. I know. Sure. I, I know. Uh, just from listening, you you you, you know you, you do have a gold position. It sounds like um, you know. There's always this uh, the gold bugs. Grant are the gold bugs are a very special breed. Uh, <laughs> uh, we always you know gold bugs like think you know tr gold is truth. I just want to get your kind of approach to why the physical metal, uh, why yellow metal, why gold, and. What does this metal play in your thoughts about an end game on the financial scale? Well, I, th I think I think gold has has been a part of just about every financial end game throughout history. You know, they're, they're, we've either gone back to a gold standard, or we've or we've come up with a new gold standard every time there's been a disruption in the in the global financial system. And I and I. I suspect strongly that this will be no different. You know, there will come a time where the financial system will need to be reset and gold will play a part now, however short term. 
Um, because when these events happen, you need something to anchor things around and gold realistically is the only sensible alternative for that. You know, people will argue, oh no, it'll be Bitcoin next time. Look, maybe they're right. I, I don't see it happening, but may, maybe they're right. I, I doubt it though. Um, so for me, you know, gold is a, is a, is a, is a, a great way to hold liquidity instead of cash. It's a great hedge against all kinds of um, problematic outcomes. And it's an asset that I know will never be impaired. You know, yes, the price can, can go up and down, but I, but I know over the long term it will preserve my purchasing power, which cash won't do. Crypto does for periods of times we've seen, but it definitely has in the last couple of weeks. Um, so, so gold... Uh, you know, I, th I think it's very important to to distinguish between the people who trade gold and the people who invest in gold. They're two very, very different mindsets. You know, I mean, you look at uh, you look at the gold price. There are people talking about how gold's broken out through 1900 here, and you know, we could be headed for 2000. And no, they're going to squash it at 1900, and the resistance is not going to get broken, and we go back down to support it, which is absolutely fine, right? Th those are trading calls. That's looking at trying to t either t either trying to time your gold trading or you're looking to profit from the moves in gold, which is absolutely fine. For me, I, I, I just don't have any interest in that. If I want to try and trade things, there are a million things I can trade back and forwards, up and down, looking at technology analysis charts. And uh, I don't need to do that with gold. For me, gold is is how I want to hold my liquidity um, and, uh, and know that at any time I want to deploy that, I can do it easily. And it will, over the long haul, maintain its purchasing power. And I never think about when I'm going to sell my gold. I always think in terms of at some point I will exchange it for something that I want to own more. And the price at that time of gold will be whatever it is. Um, but I will want to exchange that gold for something else. And, and you know, the perfect example of this is, is, is 2008. You know, People talked about how gold fell in 2008 when when bear stearns went under we saw the spike to 800 and then as the financial crisis arrived gold fell and people say well you know obviously it's it's not doing anything for you it's supposed to go up and it didn't but of course if you look at what you could have exchanged your gold for in terms of units of the S&P and then you have the 2008 collapse gold falls but you could have exchanged that gold even at a lower price for i think 3.6 times as many units of the S&P had you decided at you know, March 2009, you know what, I think I prefer to own stocks instead of gold. It didn't matter what the price of gold had done. You could buy three times as many units of the S&P with that gold. So yeah, that's a mindset that I think people who, who trade the price of gold uh, are missing. You know, it, I, I think they're seeing it the wrong way. But if that's deliberate and they just want to trade the price movements in gold, then have at it. You know, gold is is a great instrument for that because it does have uh you know price movements that enable people to trade them so it depends on your mindset mine is very much a long-term way of owning liquidity and protecting purchasing power and for that I, i've never lost any sleep um with my gold position i mean not one day do you do uh any sort of investing in silver yeah, I, I own some silver. I own physical silver, um, you know, and I and I, I invest in uh, in and out of some of the stocks. But the, you know, the stocks for me, um, whilst I have core cool positions in in companies that I I just think are great value companies, again, if you're if you're going to invest in in mining shares, you have to be paying attention, like cryptos, because these things move around, and it, look, it's been a very very tough space to be for you know 
a decade. We had a we had a great bottom in 2015, and mining stocks proved um, very quickly what they can do. You know, they doubled in a space of a few months. Um, but if you if you if you kind of get caught up in in holding on to those mining stocks and saying, well, you know, I'm I'm holding on for the ten bagger, um, you might get there, but boy, oh boy, you're going to either get some gray hairs or lose a lot of hair in between. So they're they're again they're they're um, they're far more akin to, to to cryptocurrencies and their volatility than they are the physical metals. I think. Well, uh, up or down, we'll be here on Mining Stock Daily for all the listeners to report the news up or down. So uh, it's interesting you said that because it's. I want to get your recent thoughts here. We've we've had this like nine month correction in the price of gold. Uh, silver's held up a little bit better, uh, but. We're back up. Gold's a back up over nineteen hundred dollars. Just curious, has this moved since that kind of that double bottom? Has it surprised you at all? Not, not really. I mean, uh, if you look at the conditions, everything we've spoken about, the conditions are perfect for gold. So really, the the retest of that double bottom is the is the surprising thing. Um, but again, if you're focused purely on the price, then it was a painful thing to watch. Um, but but let's look at what's happened during that time. Let's look at the gold mining companies, right? Because what they've done during this period is is remarkable. You know, these companies are in great shape now. They're in really good shape. They've a lot of them have repaired their balance sheets. Um, they've cleaned them up. They have focused on production. A lot of the managements have been kind of scared witless by by what's happened to them in the past and and, and investor reaction. And so you have an asset class that is the very epitome of value investing, right? Not only are they cheap versus other you know, versus high flying tech stocks or whatever on, on any kind of market multiple that you want to put on them not only are they cheap but when you talk about value they literally their business is pulling money out of the ground right that's value so so when you look at the mining stocks now um what we've seen is as as gold has rallied the mining stocks tend to outpace them because of the the, the gearing inherent in owning the companies but they've constantly disappointed and they've fallen back and fallen back but all, every time they've fallen back they've they're getting themselves in better shape what we haven't seen in any of these runs they've really been pure speculation what we haven't seen are proper value investors investing in mining stocks for the long term we haven't seen pension funds reallocating to precious metals now if you look at the situation today we are witnessing a clear rotation out of growth and into value. That's happening. We can argue deflation, inflation, all you want, but it's very clear that value is, let's not say back, because that will be putting the cart before the horse, but certainly there is a lot more interest in, in value versus growth. If we start to see that rotation, if, if pension funds, if, if mutual funds, if hedge funds, if you know, high net worth individuals, if people are looking for value companies, it's very difficult to look past the precious metals mining stocks, you know, very difficult now. And they're in the best shape they've been in for maybe multiple decades. So I, I think I think you're about to to see the kind of move in the precious metals mining stocks that will continue because it will start to see real money coming into it. And and as my dear friend Stephanie Pomboy has pointed out on numerous occasions, this is a self-reinforcing loop. Right now the precious metal space is too small to really attract big money yeah. but the bigger it gets the more investable it becomes and so i think that feedback loop will ultimately come into play now i i, I very rarely make these calls you know I, I made 
a, a bullish call on the mining stocks as luck would have it in December 2015 um, at, at, a, at a conference I was presenting at. And it happened to be that short-term bottom and, and they doubled very quickly. Um, I, I don't tend to talk about the stocks um, publicly because I, I just think there's so much noise around those. But I do think now that the backdrop of, of the return of value investing versus growth, the, the stimulus conditions, the real interest rate conditions, there are so many tailwinds now for gold. And I think the one missing ingredient has been finding investors into the precious metals mining stocks as opposed to speculators. And I think that final piece of the puzzle is starting to be put into place. So I'm very constructively bullish for this sector. It's a good sales pitch there, Grant. Hey, I'm not selling anything. That's the beauty of it. I'm, I'm selling. I'm selling. I've not got a single precious metal stock to sell you. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, we've had the same conversation multiple times with different guests, but I don't know if anybody has stated the same thing so eloquently as as you just did. Uh, I, I, one last question for you, uh, in, and I just was Man City is oh, the answer. <laughs> no. oh, oh. I tell you what, if we if we we play like we did the last. Uh, Last week against Aston Villa, we're going to be in trouble. Uh, but no, my last question for you is really kind of looking back on your career and the turmoil that we've had within this past year. You know, if you were to go back and give yourself advice to your 30-something self, you know, and, and say, you know, you still kept the same career. You know, you, 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 stuck, you stuck with finance and the markets. You know, uh, hindsight's always twenty twenty. but what would you, what would you tell yourself? I'd, I'd give myself three pieces of advice. Uh, read more, uh, listen more, and think more. It, it really is that simple to me. I think if you, if you take, if, you, if, you're, if you're involved in investing either as a practitioner or as an investor, investing your, your, your savings, you know, and going back to Tony Deaton, you know, Tony always talks about this in terms of, of savings, which is exactly right. If you think of it as savings instead of money, it takes on a whole new dimension. If you are investing your savings, then think more, you know, listen more, and read more. Understand what you're doing. Don't just see a, a stock tip on a newsletter and, and rush out and buy it. You know, do some due diligence. Understand the company. Read about the company's history. Get some more opinions on it. You know, um, and, and I and I think I I I I don't think I was guilty of those three things as a 30 year old, but I know I could have done an awful lot more of them. Um, and, uh, and so that's, that's what I would advise myself to do. And I'd advise anybody to do that, you know, read, read. And when I talk about reading, I talk about reading history, particularly, you know, understand where we came from because, you know, the review mirror contains every clue you want as to what's going to come at you through the windshield. So, um, so the more time you spend understanding what came before, the better chance I think you have of, of, of dealing with the future. And the more people you speak to and the more you listen instead of talk, um, you know, the more you're going to learn and the better chance you have of, of navigating whatever's to come successfully. Uh, Grant, I cannot thank you enough for this hour you've given us. And, um, uh, and again, thank you for everything you do. It, like I said, it has kind of shaped the way I approach information and ideas and, um, you know, if I may, I'm hoping in the years to come, I can be just as good of an interviewer as you are in this space uh, because you it, it's really kind of a mentorship for me to listen to you and be like, oh, I should, 
you know, give me ideas of how to frame my next guest or something like that. So uh, thank you for everything you do, even though sometimes you may not realize you're doing it. Trevor, I appreciate that. That's, that's extremely kind of you. Thank you so much. And uh, regardless of what happens on Saturday, the Champions League final, uh, this American is going to be super proud to see the first American in the final. Yeah, um, he's a good boy. He's a, my boy. He's a good player. He's a really good player. And look, I, I'm not going to lie and say I wish you well, because uh, <laughs> as a Fulham fan, I can never wish Chelsea well, as you understand. So I, I am, I'm rooting for a Man City win. But if you do win, then good luck to you. All right. I'll, uh, I'll think of you when I'm having that celebratory <laughs> point. Go. Okay. Right. Uh, Grant, before we uh, let you go, can you let everybody know where to find you and maybe inquire about a subscription to your newsletter and podcast? Sure. I, I'm, I'm very easy to find, particularly now as I'm in quarantine in the Cayman Islands. I can't even leave the house. But uh, uh, it's it's all in one place now, which is, uh, which is grant-williams.com. Everything you need to know is there. There's plenty of sample newsletters and podcasts and all kinds of stuff there. And if you're not following me on Twitter and you'd like to do that, you'll find me at TTMYGH, which is just the acronym for things that make you go home. I hope we can do this again sometime. I'd love to, Trevor, and enjoy the holiday. Thank you. Yeah. All right, everybody, that's a wrap for this week. Uh, Kylie's going to be back on Tuesday to follow up with the morning briefing and the rest of the news throughout the week. I'm off with the family. I'll see you second week of June. Be well, everybody. Thank you so much. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decision.